First Coast Connect with Melissa Ross is sponsored in part by Baptist Health. Political extremism on the rise in Florida and across America. Good morning. We're live with you from Studio 2. I'm Melissa Ross, and this is First Coast Connect. Thanks for listening. Just ahead, a closer look at the tactics of far-right activists operating in Florida and here in Jacksonville and why extremist experts are sounding the alarm. Give us a call. It's 549-2937. Then later, we'll tell you about the big Shark Tank-style event coming up this week at UNF that will hand out big money to one winning female founder. That and more ahead. But first this hour, a far-right group in Jacksonville has been regularly projecting hate symbols onto downtown buildings. The city council passed a law to try to crack down on this, but extremist experts are worried that Florida's overall political climate is only encouraging this kind of behavior. NPR's Sergio Olmos came to town the same night the council made it illegal to project digital displays onto buildings without the owner's consent, and he filed this in-depth report. Let's listen. Y'all are going to have to stand on this side of this thing. Devalue your eyeballs. In a downtown alley, a small group of self-proclaimed neo-Nazis get ready. Huh? Eyes on. All right. All of the men have their faces covered. <clears throat> Two of them wear white gaiters with the acronym of their group written in World War II era Nazi typeface. An NFL playoff game is about to kick off nearby. Downtown is full of excited football fans. So it's like when we've got two or three guys out here, we're not trying to have like a mob of angry people accost us, you know what I mean? Josh Noons leads the group. He keeps a lookout for police, while another man sits on the ground, readying a commercial-grade laser projector. They shine a scrolling message onto a skyscraper about banning drag shows. What we're really going for is people putting it on social media and spreading it around and pushing the uh, conversation in the public arena. Noons gets on his phone to call another man who's monitoring social media reaction. They start out with messaging meant to attract mainstream conservatives, but then move on to more overt bigotry. Well, here comes Mr. Bird. Noon suspects a police helicopter may be overhead. They begin packing up to move to a different spot. They take off their gaiters and walk through downtown Jacksonville. People flood out from the bars and restaurants on this cool Saturday evening. It's a mixed crowd, white, African-American, Latino, Noons and his group pass by unnoticed. Finally, they set up near the waterfront and shine an image onto a skyscraper. That's a uh, cross and a swastika. A swastika, five stories tall, that's visible for miles. And so some of this stuff we put up is just that laser Nazi bunker. We've got people that make images and we throw them up just to kind of get it out there. In 2021, the Department of Homeland Security designated white nationalists the biggest domestic threat that the U.S. faces. Experts say there's a strategy behind the kinds of things that Noons is doing. These groups are looking to desensitize people to imagery like this. Ben Pop is a researcher with the Anti-Defamation League. Over the last two years in Florida, the ADL has tracked over 400 instances of white nationalist literature being disseminated. Pop says the normalizing of racist imagery is one way that white nationalists look to gain a foothold. They want the community to view this as a normal occurrence. And so they're attempting to make it a normal occurrence by going out every weekend and using these laser projectors to do this. Pop says these kinds of actions are meant to project power, to portray the group as larger and more powerful than they are, which, for the moment, is a handful of masked men in an alley on a Saturday night. And it also is a way of them sort of saying, hey, we're here. Many of these groups aren't that big. So... Stunts like this make them seem bigger than they are, especially when it takes up a giant skyscraper in downtown Jacksonville. At the same time, mainstream political figures like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have fused some far-right talking points into their political rhetoric. We will never, ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. In states like Florida, conspiracy theories and culture war grievances that get prominent placement on right-wing media have become central to public policy. And so in Florida, we will make sure that parents can send their kids to school to get an education, not an indoctrination. This year, the governor's tapped into outrage fueled by disinformation over critical race theory. 
He continues to threaten to end high school advanced placement courses in African-American studies. Last year, DeSantis signed the so-called Don't Say Gay law that bars kindergarten through third grade classrooms from discussing sexual orientation or gender identity. The manufactured hysteria over children and drag events by politicians and pundits has spurred on extremists like Josh Nunes. We've just seen the largest upticks in recruitment from the drag stuff. Um, it's been slow and steady since we've gotten started. You know, we, our thing has been activism once a month. Noons claims his group started with three members last year. He says they now have about 20, and he's hoping to double that number by the end of the year. I think it's tempting to look for simple explanations for complex behaviors. Mike German is a former FBI agent. He worked undercover infiltrating white nationalist gangs in the past. German says that those who adhere to white nationalist ideology today or traffic in it don't always fit the stereotype of people marching with jack boots and swastika tattoos. They are a part of our society, and it's not as fringe as we'd like to believe. I mean, there are people in law enforcement who <laughs> subscribe to these ideas. There are uh, people in government, people in elected office, right? White supremacists just had dinner with the former president of the United States. German is referencing Donald Trump's meeting late last year with artist and business mogul Ye and white nationalist Nick Fuentes. Ye, formerly known as Kanye West and Fuentes, have formed a bizarre alliance over a shared love of Hitler and anti-Semitic rhetoric. Josh Nunes himself has a last name that could be pronounced Nunes. He says he's half Portuguese. I've definitely got some Iberian blood. And there's, you know, there's all types in the movement. There's people that are like, super hard purity spiralers, but it's like at the end of the day, that's never going to work in America. What does seem to be happening in America right now is a more mainstream embrace of far-right conspiracy theories and hate speech. It's exactly the kind of moment people like Josh Nunes have waited for to make their ideas seem more relatable. We're like regular working class white people uh, that are racially aware. And so we're Nazis, right? And so Stuff like this, we feel like it's a, it's a good way to relate to normal people. Normal people that Noons hopes to recruit to his cause so groups like his don't have to hide in alleys anymore. Sergio Olmos, NPR News, Jacksonville, Florida. And we're talking about the rise of white nationalism and political extremism this morning. As we welcome Claire Goforth, Jacksonville-based reporter for The Daily Dot. Good morning. Good morning. And let us know your thoughts about this at 549-2937. So you've been writing about this too, Claire, as you researched uh, an extremist influencer named Dalton Claude Felter. Tell us about him. So Dalton Claude Felter is a 22-year-old former member of the military who relocated to Florida last summer. He is uh, a member of the white nationalist Nick Fuentes, so-called Groyper Army, and he is an up-and-coming white nationalist influencer who espouses extremely anti-Semitic, violent, homophobic views. He streams on uh, Fuentes' network. He formerly streamed on Stu Peter's network, who is also a far-right conspiracy theorist. And he has been going around Florida campuses over the past couple of months with these events he calls Yay is Right for the artist formerly known as Kanye West, in which he and his co-host invite people to argue with them and basically the arguments are all them espousing Holocaust denial and anti-Semitic talking points. And he uses that for content and for clout. He, is a, he has a um, rising influence among a cohort of primarily young white males. Over the weekend, anti-Semitic extremists held what they call a day of hate. Jewish leaders in this community uh, had to pay for extra security at their synagogues and temples. And it was extremely upsetting. Yeah, and that is exactly the point. They want to inspire fear. They want to uh, get attention. And they want to keep fueling this outrage machine that is tapping into this vein of white grievance in order to attract followers and to just, you know, create a bit of a chaotic feeling and a sense of terror among the people they target. National security experts call white nationalism extremist groups that adhere to white nationalism the biggest domestic threat facing our nation. What would you say to those who follow this and they're concerned about it, but might say, this is a tiny fringe group of people. It's not something we need to be worried about overall. 
Well, I would say a couple of things. I mean, you know, if you look at the rise of Nazism in Germany, it was initially just a small group of people and it grew. It grew because good people looked the other way. If you look here in the United States, Timothy McVeigh was one person and he was a white supremacist and he killed how many people in the Oklahoma City bombing? You even look more recently, there was a Florida-based group, Adam Waffen Division. Several murders came from that group. Unite the Right in 2017 was violent, left people dead and injured and arrested. There was certainly an amount of white grievance that was behind the Capitol riot. And, you know, it is imperative upon people who oppose the idea of fascism, who oppose white supremacy, anti-Semitism, to stand up and say this is not okay and to name and shame the individuals behind it and to hold them accountable merely by exposing what they actually believe and uh, who they are. A number of conservative leading groups have done that, along with progressive groups. How does this movement differ from traditional conservatism, would you say? Well, it is. It's it's extremism is how it differs. But what we're seeing continually is it's bleeding into traditional conservatism. And that is not to say that most conservatives believe these things. But we're seeing these type of views broadcast by Tucker Carlson, who has the highest rated cable news program in America. And we're seeing it throughout the right wing media ecosystem where these types of extremist views are bleeding into the mainstream conservatism. And that's exactly what has happened previously and why people should stand up and take notice now before it is too late. Is there a comparable movement on the left? For example, one listener emails the show, what about violence that happened during Black Lives Matter protests? They do like to point to that. And It is undeniable that there was some looting and some violence during those protests, but it is also true that those protests were overwhelmingly peaceful and that it was a small number of actors, many of whom who have been held to account for their actions. But they point to those um, those instances of violence and looting and um, vandalism during the Black Lives Matter protest in order to undermine the ultimate cause that they were pushing, which those protests were about civil rights in America and and police violence against marginalized communities. I think one problem uh, people have as they try to call attention to the dangers of white nationalism is that many Americans do conflate the far right and the far left. They they look at the two extremes and say, well, they're they're both crazy. They're both violent. So how do you reach uh, the the vast middle of the country uh, and and communicate to them, this is a real threat. You know, it is a false equivalency that we're seeing when you're equating the far left and the far right, because the far right is openly advocating violence of much more than the far left. But we can also say at the same time, okay, yes, they're both wrong. Both advocating violence, advocating destruction is wrong. So let's ferret it out and let's hold people who are doing it to account and show who they are. But at the same time, let's not get Let's not get confused and say that it's exactly the same on both sides, because the reality is it's a much stronger and much larger movement on the far right to advocate for violence, including genocide in many cases. Five four nine two nine three seven. Give us a call. Mark in St. Augustine. Good morning, Mark. Hey, good morning. Um one, I want to say I don't condone or believe in or subscribe to any of the, the racist messaging of the groups that you're describing today. But I guess I kind of fall into the camp of if you have a two or three year old toddler who's throwing a temper tantrum, you don't try and reason with them. You ignore it and, and don't give them the satisfaction. You had a show on about a month or two ago and there was a lady on there, one of your guests, and she said, I am not going to give these groups the satisfaction of even using their name. And so on NPR, you had a a national correspondent that highlighted what was going on in Jacksonville. And even in that piece, he said they started off with three members and now they're up to 20. In my opinion, that's not huge. I mean, they're all idiots, in my opinion, but it's not a huge group. And they even said that placing that large uh, uh, visual sign up on the side of a building made the group look bigger than they are. And so I understand the topic that you're discussing, but I kind of think in a way we're giving them what they want by even having this discussion in the first place. If 
if they don't get the news, if they don't get a, a rise out of the people that they're trying to bother, then I, I'm not saying that they would go away. I mean, you can't make uh, you know stupid thoughts illegal. But I just wouldn't give them the satisfaction of even having a discussion like this. But that's just my two cents worth. Thanks, Mark. So is even talking about these extremist groups only emboldening them and giving them more room to grow their numbers? Some people do feel that way. And these groups, I have to admit, these groups do enjoy the attention. But we're looking at a rise in anti-Semitic incidents. The Anti-Defamation League reported an unprecedented number of anti-Semitic incidents in America in 2021. And they project that 2022, there may have been even more than the previous year. And so how long do we look away? While just Noon's group may only have 20 members, he says, and these people have been known to, they tell lies for their own purposes and we don't know what's true and what's not. I can tell you from the time that I've been tracking his telegram group, it's uh, quintu- no, it's quadrupled in membership and now they're closing in on a thousand members of his telegram group. So while there may only be 20 people who are actively involved in these incidents, how many more are below the surface? That is the tip of the iceberg. Those are the most engaged people, the ones who are willing to go out and risk being identified. So while there may only be 20 people in the group, how many more are following them and cheering them on? We should note that over the weekend, the FDLE, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, stepped up its presence around the state in response to social media posts about holding a national day of hate against Jewish groups. They were on guard all over the weekend for any outbreak of violence in Florida. I'm not aware of anything that did happen. Uh, and the uh, hateful posts also had the effect of Jewish communities rising in unity and solidarity against these hate groups. We saw that as well. And that's what we want to see. Don't We want to see people come together as a community and say, no, we reject these beliefs. We oppose this and we stand united against these people who really are just hateful. We'll go to more calls in a minute at 549-2937. Jim emails the show from North Carolina. He's listening all the way up there. He says, this is everywhere. Police in Boone are investigating an anti-Semitic flag that was placed outside a Jewish temple in Boone, North Carolina, where he's listening uh, online. So this is a problem all over the country, obviously, but isn't North Florida seen as a particular hotbed of hate and extremist groups? It certainly is. I was in communication with a photojournalist who worked with NPR on this story prior to them coming to Florida. And they initially were going to go to central Florida and ultimately ended up in North Florida because we have so many different hate groups and hateful individuals who live in this community they are in other parts of Florida as well. I mean, the state generally is it. It's very attractive for, to extremists. And part of that is because they perceive rightly or wrongly that the governor and the leadership of the state accepts these views. Uh, and to be clear, uh, the governor's office over the weekend did denounce the day of hate and denounced anti-Semitism. Just wanted to add that to the conversation. Oh, for sure. I mean, but then then again, we have a governor who's banning books based on, you know, them teaching certain topics associated with racism and being LGBTQ, which is something that fascist groups celebrate. Five, four, nine, two, nine, three, seven. May in Jacksonville Beach. Go ahead, May. Good morning. How are you all today? All right. Um, I'll try to be succinct. The Black Lives Matter violence is wrong. It's committed against buildings and stuff. The white nationalist movement has resulted in many deaths of people, and that is the key difference. They are not equivalent. They are nothing of the sort. I don't understand why any private airplane is allowed to fly over the football stadium during a football game. And I don't understand why the Nazi symbols are disallowed in Germany. You go to jail for having any Nazi anything but in the in the joke called free speech, we allow it here, and it's just enough already. And I'll take uh, I'll take your comments off the air. Thank you, May. 
you know, when we saw the flag flying over the football stadium and the displays on the football stadium, a lot of people did ask, why is this being allowed? Well, free speech allows it. Right. Free speech does allow it. But here locally, they have passed an ordinance that makes it uh, a misdemeanor if you project uh, symbols onto private property without a permit. Yeah. Um, and there is a legislation that's being proposed by two lawmakers that would make it illegal to um, project hateful uh, messages, to distribute hateful messages. I don't think that's going to pass a first amendment test. But one thing that I have noticed that it is a possibility, a possible avenue for enforcement here is we do have an anti-littering statute here in Jacksonville and it carries uh, financial penalties. Um, And there is overwhelming evidence that Nunes, Nunes group is behind distributing these flyers all over town. And each incidence of that could possibly be, violating the littering statute. Mm. So, I mean, several thousand dollars worth of fines can be a pretty powerful disincentive. Josh tweets the show, can you talk more about the role of social media in spreading these hateful conspiracies? Yeah, social media is definitely a problem when you look at how to curb hate because social media, the algorithms, they reward any type of engagement. Angry engagement is included in those, which is why you see where hateful Hashtags, hateful messages will go so viral. And there's a lot of conversation in spaces where people who object to the spread of hate question whether or not it makes sense to even engage with hateful content online because that boosts the algorithm, which means more people see it. Even if you're saying this is vile anti-Semitism, well, just you're commenting on it, you're sharing it, you're retweeting it then more people are going to see that message. So I don't know what the exact answer is there, but it definitely are a lot of conversations going on about how you can effectively use social media without giving these type of messages more of a platform. The big fear, of course, is that if these groups gain more of a foothold, that there will be more widespread political violence in the United States. Yes. That's that- why extremism experts say it's so important to have these conversations, right? Yes, absolutely. If we turn our turn a blind eye to this, it's not going to stop it. We're seeing more young people who are being drawn into this movement. And while the younger generation, Generation Z, they do skew liberal, it doesn't take very many in order to do some very terrible things. I mean, if 10 to 15 percent of them start to espouse these type of views, believe these type of views, a very engaged minority can make a significant difference, and that could include violence. Dave in Ponte Vedra. Hi, Dave. Hi. I want to respond to the earlier caller who complained about the media offering attention to these groups. I think that you know, the attention is important. By ignoring them, it legitimizes silence. It makes people comfortable in not speaking out. It makes their silence of valid response to hatred and it allows it to grow. I, it, it infuriates me that uh, people can embrace that point of view that, oh, well, if we just ignore them, they'll go away. Uh, that's not how it works. Thank you, Dave. Uh, there's a famous quote. It was once attributed to Werner Herzog, although I'm not quite sure he said it, but he said, uh, America, you are waking up to the fact that as Germany once did, to the awareness that one third of your people would willingly kill another third while the final third watches. That's the ultimate fear, right? Yeah. And we have seen it in other nations around the world where people who really don't have very much ideological difference between them suddenly form this uh, intense hatred for one another. And it just, it turns violent. Claire Goforth of the Daily Dot. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. And much more still ahead later in the hour. A new immersive exhibit at the Kummer Museum of Art and Gardens. We'll speak with the artist, but up next. Our mission is to invest in early stage companies, uh, startups. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the program Shark Tank. We do that every week at our company. How Jacksonville's PS27 Ventures is funding the female CEOs of the future. That's next.
Today's segment of First Coast Success is brought to you by First Horizon. Welcome back. Well, Jim Stallings is the founder and CEO of PS27 Ventures. They invest in early stage technology companies founded primarily by women, veterans, and people of color. Now their Female Founders Forum Shark Tank event is coming up at UNF. And five women CEOs of startups will all compete on the stage for $250,000 in seed money for their companies. Stallings shared more with Karen Bernie Mathis of the Jack's Daily Record in today's First Coast Success. Jim Stallings is the founder and CEO of PS27 Ventures, a Jacksonville-based firm that invests in early-stage technology companies. He believes that innovation is a core and necessary strategy, and he helps set up a fund to invest in it. His experience includes 35 years with IBM and five years with the U.S. Marines. He's held top leadership roles in several Fortune 25 companies. Jim Stallings, welcome to First Coast Success. Thank you, Karen, for having me. Well, let's start with this. What motivated you to set up PS27 Ventures? It was a decade ago. What does PS27 stand for and what is your mission? Yeah, well, our mission is to invest in early stage companies, uh, startups. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the program Shark Tank. We do that every week at our company. Uh, We look for great ideas, great founders, uh, innovative solutions, things that make money. And we invest in them. And we give the founders an opportunity to uh, learn from our team about leadership, uh, operational excellence, financial management. And we coach them for about a year, year and a half until they grow to the next level and hopefully uh, exit either through an acquisition or merging with another company. And, and our company and our investors uh, hopefully make a profit. So that that's our model. PS27 really stands for um, uh, Psalm 27. And it stems from my time in the Marine Corps many, many years ago. Uh, we would read Psalm 27 before anything um, dangerous that we would do. And, and uh, it's become a favorite of mine. And when I, you know, years ago, I said, well, if I ever start a company, I'm going to name it PS27. And that's, that's how we came about with that. And that was a decade ago. That was a long time ago. Yeah, 10 years ago we started. Well, I know one of your focuses is, um, is on companies that are founded by women, hmm. by veterans, and by people of color. Why is that focus necessary? Well, what I've learned over 10 years of investing is uh, many of those groups that you named uh, haven't had an opportunity to be at the table, to just be even considered for investment. And part of it is just their background or their training or job um, or just where they grew up just didn't afford them exposure to business, business people, finance. Uh, And in many cases, they just didn't have the empowerment or the positive environment to feel like this is something I could do that, you know, other people could do it, but not me. I'm supposed to go get a job and work. And so we outreach to those groups. We do a lot of training. We do a lot of education. We do a lot of motivation and empowerment. We leave it up to them as to what they will invest in. They've got a great idea. We, br- we ask them to bring it to us first. <laughs> and, and then we spend time with them as, as we do all of the companies. But it's part of our, our mission and purpose is to make sure uh, our investment includes everyone, not just a, a group of tech. Uh, inventors from the West Coast. So we reach out across all groups. Veterans, for example, when you leave the military, and I've had this experience, you just you just haven't been exposed to business. You've got great leadership skills. You've got strong work ethic. You're committed. You're purpose-driven. You're willing to work the hours. You just lack the exposure and training. So we've got a major outreach to veterans. Um, I was involved in the Veterans Entrepreneur a forum this past year, and we plan to be involved in it for every year going forward, just to help veterans get a get a start in the business of entrepreneurship. Now, you do have a lot of forums in Jacksonville, or mm-hmm. big forums. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so we, we've decided to organize ourselves around this program. So instead of doing one-off engagements with, with women, people of color, veterans, um, we also have an interest in um, disabled or adaptive founders that may not have the ability to get to the office, that, but they can start a business from home. Um, so we've got outreach into that now. But what we decided to do was bring bring everybody together for one day in a big forum. So next week, next Friday, March 3rd, we're going to have the Female Founders Forum. There's probably 350 women 
going to come together from all over the Southeast and hear role model women talk about their journey. What are the lessons they learned? What are the challenges they overcame? And also, what is the success you can enjoy once you you incorporate some of those lessons? Uh, In June, we're going to have a Black Founders Forum. Same concept, role models, venture capitalists. We're going to showcase 20 or 30 uh, outstanding startups from around the region just as a way to get them exposure and give them empowerment. Uh, Sometime in the fall, we're going to probably do an adaptive um, Founders Forum. And this is for our disabled um, colleagues that may not have just had the training, may not have had the exposure, may not have had access. We're going to give them access, have a big, you know, program and some classes and lessons around finance marketing. For those that have a business, we're going to help them grow. And fortunately for PS27 with our fund, we'll be able to invest in some. Well, now, Jim Stallings, you are, of course, founder and CEO of PS27 Ventures, but you spent a lot of time in corporate America. What brought you to Jacksonville? And talk a little bit about the lessons not only that you learned, but that you taught yeah. in corporate America. Well, I mean, I, I had a great career at the IBM company. I worked all over the world. I traveled to dozens and dozens of countries, and I learned a lot about innovation and customer needs in the process of doing it. I also found that the world needs innovative solutions. It's not just our region, our state, or the United States. If you've got something that works technologically here, you can apply it anywhere. And now, with the Internet, you can sell anywhere, communicate anywhere. So I I brought that into this entrepreneurial experience. I also brought uh, with me this idea that it's great leaders that make great companies. It's not great companies that make you a great leader. You've got to have a, a, a sense of purpose, mission. You've got to have a moral compass. You've got to understand how to create a positive, strong culture that attracts people to it, that allows them to stay and feel like they belong in it. Because when they feel like they belong, they'll give their best. When they feel like there's a purpose, they'll want to be a part of it. And it's not as much about money. It's about where are we going as a company. I learned that in corporate America, and I learned that in the Marine Corps, and I've brought that to PS27, and I try to teach that to all the founders that I work with. Start with your purpose and mission and build from there. Why Jacksonville? Why are you in Jacksonville, well, <laughs> and why did you yeah, do well, PS27? I, you know, I was here in an IBM assignment some years ago, back in the 90s. IBM sent me to, they said, look, it's time for you to go to uh, the field and operate, and we're going to send you to Jacksonville. I thought Jacksonville was Miami. So when I got the plane, I'm like, this isn't Miami. But I fell in love with Jacksonville. Now, later, IBM pulled me back to New York, and I decided whenever I retire, I'm going to go back to Jacksonville. And I did. I'm so glad I did, because what I discovered coming back was this city is on the move. It's got all of the elements of a of a major technology center. It's not only got that in terms of skills and universities and and interests. It's got corporations that are headquartering here with enormous skills that can be available to these startups. And on top of that, it's got a great quality of life. I love the outdoors. I love, you know, I like being out in the at the beach or in the golf course or wherever. That's the right combination for building a great city, a great technological city, a great city that builds jobs. I mean, high paying jobs. And it's very, very attractive compared to some of the other markets in the world. So that's why. And I'm glad to be a part of of this movement around entrepreneurship. And that's what I'm committed to for the rest of my time. Well, Jim Stallings, founder of PS27 Ventures, thank you for joining First Coast Success. Thank you for having me. Well, there's a brand new immersive exhibition up at the Kummer Museum of Art and Gardens. It's called Flight Patterns. And the artist, Anila Kayum Aga, is on the line to tell us more. Good morning. 
How are you, Melissa? I'm really good. Uh, good to have you. So flight patterns. Thank you for taking this time. Oh, you're so welcome. So this is an immersive exhibit. Tell us about the exhibition flight patterns at the Comer. So the exhibition opened this past Friday, and on view, view there are two of my large-scale sculptural installations. One is titled "A Beautiful Despair," and this is, and the second one is "This Is Not a Refuge." Um, there are also some mixed media works and wall-based sculptures. Um, uh, just as a small segue into explaining what these are, the beautiful despair explores themes around the pandemic and how while the human race was struggling really deeply during the pandemic, um, nature started to flourish. And that was just so uh, inspiring, both in the sense of hope and then on the other side, the contradiction of feeling such a loss of community. And then This Is Not a Refuge explores America as a beacon for excuse me, immigrants, and how America should not tarnish its image abroad or even within. And and you yourself have had the immigrant experience coming here from Pakistan. So how much does that inform your work? I think it informs, you know, at least uh, 80%, I would say, because, you know, when I left, Pakistan, I was a young adult, and I was just starting out, and I felt like I needed a challenge. So um, my husband at that time, he and I, we decided to move here with our small child. And um, once I got here, you know, if I'd known the kind of difficulties and the hurdles I would have had to go through, I would have thought twice about it. But, you know, challenges make life more interesting mm-hmm. and so I always look at it that way that I have to rise to the challenge. I used to wear a wristband back in the early north called failure is not an option mm. because you know, it really wasn't. No <laughs> it wasn't because I had no um, support system here so I had to you know figure out how to live how to provide a roof for my child um, and just find work. And so I really worked so hard. But uh, that's also my point that uh, immigrants often choose to come here. Sometimes, of course, they are forced to come here because of safety issues or war issues or economic situations. But they often come here with a purpose to provide for their families. And so I think it is tremendously important that America continues to keep that door open, I feel. You know, Jacksonville has a large refugee population. We're one of the top 100 cities in the country, actually, for refugee resettlement. So what are your thoughts about uh, the importance of the Cumber Museum bringing these types of exhibitions to town that reflect the stories of the diverse community here? Um, I think that, uh, you know, when we talk more about situations that are often uh, conflict-oriented, like the refugee situation is such a red topic in this country now, um, then we can hopefully find solutions. But if we don't even talk about them, we posture or we kind of use it against the other party or something like that, then it causes more issues. I think to find solutions to the refugee issue, to immigration, you know, we need to work harder on that. Because I think, um, you know, people are going to come anyway. Why not make it a smoother journey and maybe help people settle down well? I really appreciate that Jacksonville is one of those cities that actually does that because it was reflected in the the dinner that the Common Museum threw, um, Ponce de Leon, I think it was called. Um, and I looked out when I was talking to the crowd, and it was just such a pleasure to see the diversity reflected in the crowd. Often it's more homogenized for me when I'm making a speech or I'm talking to people. And so I was thrilled, and I told Andrea, the director of the program, how impressed I am. Mm. That 
all these people are, you know, hanging out together and they're they're working together to make these exhibitions come. I think exhibitions such as mine, and uh, forgive me if I sound a little bold in saying this, but, uh, you know, can make people think about issues that are on the ground. And so I'm really thrilled and so grateful that Kummer selected me as the artist to bring in. Well, and I I think they're thrilled to have you. You're known internationally for your work, most recently your 2021 Smithsonian Fellowship, among other laurels. So you've got a big reputation in the art world. (laughs) Well, I thank you. It's people such as uh, Kummer and others who have, you know, uh, supported me. I think, like, nobody can rise to heights unless other people support you. And I, I, you know, guarantee there are thousands who gave me a helping hand and moved me up a step. Uh, you know, it's it's a story that is truly uh, what happens in America. You know, when I was living in Pakistan, I used to think that, you know, I'd have the freedom to do what I wish to do. And it really came through and true. Uh, I think it was a lot of struggle for the first 10, 15 years. But, you know, it was a good struggle. It was challenging. It was it taught me how to live, how to be an artist, how to be a good person. And uh, uh, I'm really thrilled that I did move to the United States. Well, we're thrilled to speak with you. And uh, thank you so much for joining us because uh, we encourage everyone to go check out Flight Patterns. The exhibition is Mm -hmm. up now at the Kummer Museum of Art and Gardens, two large sculptural installations, mixed-media works, wall sculptures, uh, all internationally recognized. So thank you so much, Anelia. She's artist Anelia Kayum Aga, and it's Flight Patterns at the Kummer Museum. Thanks and congratulations. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you. And uh, more at org. Check it out, folks. A quick break, and when we come back, well, March Madness is almost upon us, and so is the Formula One season. That and more sports from our own Josh Torres when we come back, but keep listening. This is First Coast Connect on 89.9. We'll be right back. video game developers make up a tiny percentage of people working in the industry. I don't think we'll ever be able to fix the original sin of these massive studios actively not hiring black people. We can never make up for the lost time. But they are finding success despite the barriers. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Starting at 4 on WJCT News 89.9. A professor in Afghanistan railed against the Taliban. He condemned their rules denying women and girls an education. He went on TV and ripped up his own diploma in protest. Then he disappeared. He told me that the Taliban several times came to his house and told him that he should stop. His was not the only arrest. A new Taliban campaign to silence its critics. Our story on the world. This afternoon at 3 
here on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Author Bryce Andrews was given a Smith & Wesson revolver to use on his Montana ranch, but the inheritance weighed on him. I came to this realization that having this gun around was not a good thing for me. But though I wanted to change what I had inherited from my grandfather, I didn't necessarily want to destroy it. So he forged the weapon into something new. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at 2 on WJCT News 89.9. More than 60 years after the contraceptive pill was developed for women, we still don't have an equivalent for men. Is that about to change? Scientists in New York City say they've found a way to stop sperm from being able to swim. Next time on 1A, doctors, double standards, and the long hunt for the missing male pill. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back. Well, it's nearly March, and that means the March Madness NCAA basketball tournament is almost upon us. Also, the Jaguars have begun re-signing some key players from last season. And Formula One season is getting underway. Josh Torres is in the middle of it all and joins us now. Hey, good morning. Hey there, Melissa. All right. So March Madness starts this week. How are our local teams doing as they look to punch their ticket into the big dance? Yep. It's it's that time of year where in just a few days, everybody like me will be, will be filling out our brackets to t- figure out if we, you know, know a little bit about our sport and being right. able to figure out who's going to win the big the big game. But this actually starting today, uh, the only local team that is actually going to be fighting to get into the big tournament is UNF. Hmm. Uh, they did get into the A-Sun tournament, which one thing that really surprised me about the season, the fact that is really kind of the fall off that JU had from last year. Last year, they were the surprise team, made it all the way to the A-Sun championship game. And this year, they didn't even make it into the ASUN Conference Tournament hmm. at all. So that is quite surprising to me. But still, tonight, UNF will be taking on Bellarmine, who actually they just played on Friday night, beat them. So this is going to be a very, very big matchup for them. Bellarmine actually won the ASUN Tournament last year, but because they were in the middle of their transition from Division Two to Division One, they did not get to go to the NCAA Tournament as they had to wait three years before they're actually eligible to make it into the NCAA tournament. This will be a big matchup. If UNF does win, they will end up playing Liberty University in a few days, which will be a very, very tough matchup for them. Liberty's always been very, very good and usually sits at the top of the A-Sun, so it'll be interesting to see. But UNF is looking to punch their ticket, and Matthew Driscoll, head coach of UNF, has said that he thinks that his team can shock people but he also said that he thinks there are a lot of teams that can shock people and that the A-Sun is going to be very, very competitive. But I'm very excited to see what happens tonight. Well, good luck, Ospreys. Go get them. All right. The new NFL league year is getting underway soon, but the Jags have re-signed several players from last year's team. Who has a new contract and what do you think it says about the team's hopes for the upcoming season? Yeah, so they, they've extended, they've given contract extensions to three players, uh, backup quarterback C.J. Beathard, uh, Roy Robertson Harris, and also to Jamichael Hasty, running back. So, CJ Beathard clearly it shows that they really do believe that he is a good backup to Trevor Lawrence. That probably whatever he's showing in practice and in the limited amount of game time he has gotten, he showed he showed him like, hey, I can step up if I need to. He obviously hasn't really had a chance to fight, really truly fight for the the starting position, which isn't surprising with Trevor Lawrence having a very lock on that on that position but still it shows that they really do believe that cj if need be can step up and help the team win roy robertson harris jamichael hasty two key i would say key players especially roy robertson harris a lot of people thought he was going to be what is called a cap casualty being that you know they weren't going to give him a contract extension they were probably going to release him in order to save on the cap space that they need in order to extend guys like evan ingram who i'm quite shocked has yet to even receive a contract extension, but they could be waiting a little bit to really make sure they have everything hit home. But still, I do expect that to happen. And Jamichael Hasty, he's clearly going to be a backup guy toward for uh, running back Travis Etienne, but still he's been very good in the time that he has seen. So these are guys, and it seems like they're really trying to build that core and keep that core together to continue the success that they had last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is one thing I think they're really going for is trying to keep their core players together 
so that they can build. They're looking at teams like Kansas City, who just won the Super Bowl, who really have kept their core together as long as possible. They've been able to pull in veteran players to add to that core, but their core their core group has always stuck together, and I really think that's kind of what the Jaguars are trying to do here. Last but not least, it is Josh Torres' favorite time of year as the new Formula One season begins this week. Now, for the first time since 2015, there is an American racing. Who is representing the U.S. over there? Yeah, Formula One. Yeah, it's going to be the first time since 2015 when Alexander Rossi, who now drives an Indy car, uh, he had a few races there with a backmarker team, so he really didn't get a really big shot. And then before him, it was 2007 with Scott Speed, who uh, drove for Toro Rosso. Uh, for the, he was the last full-time American to drive over there. But this week, we are going to see, for the first time, an American. And not only that, he's from Florida, from Fort Lauderdale, Logan Sargent, who is going to be driving for the Williams Formula One team. He's replacing Canadian... Uh, Nicholas Latifi, but it's very exciting to see, and it and a lot of that goes with the explosion of popularity you've seen from from Formula One in the U.S. This upcoming season, there's gonna be three races just in the U.S. alone, down in Miami, in the usual one in Austin, Texas, and then we're gonna see them going through the Strip in Las Vegas oh, at, wow. n- at night. Too. Oh no way! That is gonna be insane to see. A lot of the drivers are very excited, but I think that's really one of the things you show. But at the same time. Logan has done the work and has deserved that seat, in my opinion. So it's going to be very exciting to see the U.S. represented on the Formula One grid this week, starting this weekend in Bahrain. I'm super excited for it, and I really hope a lot of people check it out and give Logan the support so that way we can continue to see that, uh, that see an American in Formula One. Nice. Josh Torres, thanks. Thank you, Melissa. And thanks for listening. Thanks also to our team, David Luckin, Heather Schatz, Brendan Rivers, Isabella Da Silva. Michelle Corum, Formula One racers in the news every morning. Uh, I'm Melissa Ross. Drop us a line anytime at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. And we'll catch you at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Make it a great day. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.